Man, if y'all ain't fired up to receive the Word, you never will be. Amen? Turn to Luke chapter 9. We dive back into our series through the Gospel of Luke entitled, Follow Me. This is our 46th week. By the time we get done, know what we're going to make Ephesians look like a weekend Bible study, right? <laughs> I've entitled this message, Unfinished. Luke 9 will be in 51 to 56 in a minute. I want to start by asking you, do you love the Bible? What do you love the most about the Bible? applicable to you today? I think one of the things I love the most is its honesty. Especially with regards to the characters within its pages and there's some characters. Amen? When I think of Noah, righteous, blameless, walking with God and drunk, laying around buck neck in his tent the next, I think there's hope for me. When I think of Abraham, that he believed God, he's the father of faith, he's lying and sleeping with his wife's handmaid the next, I think there's hope for me. Or Moses, the meekest man on earth, he's killing folks and busting the Ten Commandments to smithereens the next. David, a man after God's own heart, and then that's one hot mom on the rooftop, and hey, my family just filmed an episode of Jerry Springer the next, I'm thinking there's hope for me. Elijah, any of you that are in leadership, we all know this, victorious over 450 prophets, and then Jezebel comes threatening to run off and sit under a tree and just say, God, just go on and kill me. I can't take any more of this. The next. Or think about the disciples. Peter walking on water one minute, drowning the next. They see things such as Jesus raising the dead. And Jesus says, all these people are here getting ready to feed the 5,000. Now you feed them. And they're like, where do you want us to get food to feed all of these people? Does it sound like you? Sounds like me. But the Bible's honesty about its biggest characters, the very heroes of our faith, gives me great hope in the messiness of my life. I mean, think about how instructive would it be if they got everything right? How much hope would we have if God evaporated them after the second mess up? And so as we read Luke 9, 51 to 56, we see God wasn't finished working in their lives. They, like us, were God's masterpieces, just unfinished. And I don't know in today's age if there's a more instructive and relevant and hope-inspiring passage we can find than this one for those of us that are truly seeking to follow Christ. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. The Word of God, the people of God, preached in the power of the Spirit of God. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this day. Father, thank You that we can come back the Sunday after Resurrection Sunday and every Sunday and say that we have victory in Jesus because He won over death, over sin, over the grave, Father, over Satan, and so we stand victorious. We're not standing here on this solid ground, Father. We are actually seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are already victorious in Jesus. To that point, we thank You so much for that. We thank You for Your Word, Father, the, how precious it is to us, how honest it is, and how, as we've said, we can apply it to our lives. And so I pray that You would just help us to set aside the daily cares of our lives. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to be molded to Your truth, that we will then have our hands and feet go out and be like Christ. For it's in His wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So first, I want to show you the travel log. The travel log, verse 51. It's a watershed in the Gospel of Luke. It's known as the travel log. The outline of Luke is that the first four chapters are the prelude to Christ's ministry. The next uh, five are the ministry in Galilee. And then from here to uh, the middle of chapter 19 is the journey to Jerusalem. So circle, underline, asterisk, mark some way in your Bibles, 951. It's a new section of Luke's Gospel. In fact, it's the lengthiest. 37% of the Gospel is going to be here in these chapters. And it has no counterpart in any of the other Gospels. There's material here that none of the other Gospels have, as we'll talk about in a minute. And it's a dramatic turning point in Christ's ministry, Him going to Jerusalem. So look at verse 51, if you will. It says, When the days drew near. The Greek there is to fulfill that this was God's divine design from eternity past. Nothing has happened by accident. It's all by God's divine timetable. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you look at Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks, and it says that from the going out of the decree to the time that the Messiah would be cut off was exactly 62 weeks. And you can look at the timing of that uh, historically and count the days down exactly to the time that Jesus was crucified on the cross. Our God is an on-time God. Amen? Amen? Now we may not like His timing, but He's an on-time God. All the time. Amen? Amen? And so nothing is happening by accident. The days drew near and look what it says for Him to be taken up. That word there is a noun, but in the verb form it refers to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And so we know that from eternity past, 1 Peter 1.18, that Jesus is the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, that from eternity past, God purposed for Jesus to die on the cross, and not just that, was that as certain as uh, Him dying on the cross, but Him being resurrected to new life was just as certain as Him dying on the cross. And so let me tell you, if God says X, Y, or Z in this book, you can take it to the bank. Now, if Buffy Cook tells you something in the office 
that this sinus infection may get better or it may get worse. That might be true and it might not. But if God says that it's going to happen, you can bet your bottom dollar on it. Amen? And so then it says He set His face. That word is in Isaiah 50 verse 7 that He set His face like flint, like rock. It's a Hebrew idiom meaning He was rock steady. One pastor said it was divine grit. He has set His face. He's rock steady to go to Jerusalem. And why is He going to Jerusalem? For the very purpose that He came. He was born to die. No one and nothing was going to stop Him from the cross. And so let me ask you, when was the last time you thanked Jesus for the cross? When was the last time you thanked Him for Him being rock steady to go to the cross? And so this section here, verse 51, it's Luke's narrative of this long journey to the cross. If you trace it carefully, it's not a direct route. It maybe is not even a single journey. One commentator said that it was three trips in one. Because if you look here at 951, he's going to Jerusalem by the shorter route through Samaria, as we'll see in a minute. In 191, he's passing through Jericho, which is on the longer route. In 1038, he's at the village of Martha and Mary, uh, which is in Bethany, a few miles from Jerusalem. And then in 1711, he's between Samaria and Galilee. Remember what I've said. Luke is not chronological. And if you try to read it chronologically, it's going to mess you up. Luke is what? Topical. Theological. He is uh, wanting to get a point across. Look back at chapter 1. What is Luke's whole purpose? Who's he writing to? Jimmy asks us this all the time. Who's he writing to? Theophilus. Theophilus. But also who else? The Gentiles. And who is that? That's us. What does he want Theophilus and us to have, to accomplish in this? Look at verse 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things for some time past, to write an orderly account. He doesn't say a chronological day-by-day account, right? Why? So you will have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That we will be certain about the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so I said this section is unique to Luke. There's teaching and parables that are found nowhere else other than here. Luke has 37 parables in total and 23 are in this section. That's almost 66%. And 16 of the parables of Jesus that are unique and only found in Luke occur right here. And so what we see is this heightened emphasis in this section on teaching and Jesus' disciples. And so think about it. What is the title of our series? Follow Me. And so this, brothers and sisters, is the meat and the taters. Alright? This is the meat and the taters for you and I as we're trying to follow Christ. So the first thing we find is Jesus' attitude and action in sharp contrast to that of the disciples. And we see how messy their spirituality was, how far they had to go in their walk with Christ, and how far we had to go in our walk with Christ. We're guilty of the same things that they are guilty of, and we're deserving of the same rebuke that Jesus gave them. So I want to give you three things. The first thing is 
They were unfinished. They exhibited prejudice. They exhibited prejudice. Look at verse 52 to 54. Remember, I always say, context, context, context. It says he entered a village of the Samaritans. We'll come back to the text here in just a minute. But if you define prejudice, it's a preconceived opinion or feeling. Something that you have already determined in your mind that this is what all Muslims are like, or this is what all blacks are like, or this is what all Southerners are like, or this is what all Baptists are like. You have already predetermined it in your mind that this is how they are, and you already have thoughts and feelings towards that. And so the Jews and the Samaritans had profound racial and spiritual prejudice towards one another. It was an age-old feud, and there was just as much hate on one side of the aisle as there was on the other side of the aisle. So a little context. Samaria was the name that Omri uh, gave to the capital of the northern kingdom and it came to be the region in northern Israel between southern Israel and Galilee as well as the name of its inhabitants, Samaritans. Jews regarded them as heretics and half-breeds. When Assyria captured the northern kingdom, the king took off some Israelites to distant locations, but he left some there. And then when they came back, and they repopulated it, he filled it with alien people. And so the Jews then intermarried with these alien people and became the Samaritans, a mixed Jew and Gentile people. So they were half-breeds. Add to this that the Samaritans rejected the Jewish scriptures, and then they also rejected Jerusalem as the place to worship. They worshipped instead on Mount Gerizim, so they were heretics. And there was no love loss on the Samaritan side either. The Jews, to them, they said, well, they might be purebreds, but they were heretics as well. And so they had their own set of rival scriptures. They had their own uh, church to worship in. And even worse, the Jews had destroyed their temple in 128 B.C. And so that was like napalm on a forest fire, wasn't it? I mean, they literally hated each other. The Jews would curse them in the synagogues and prayed that they would not even be allowed to have eternal life. The Samaritans then snuck into the Jerusalem temple and strolled human bones all over the place. You can only imagine how that went over. And so they just regretted that life was so short. You know why? Because there was so much to hate about each other and so little time to hate. And so that's the background of what's going on when Jesus then sets out for Jerusalem, but He goes down the narrow path. There were two ways to go. You could go the long route around uh, Perea and near Jericho. That'd take you about a week. Or you could go the direct route, straight shot through Samaria. That'd take you about three days. Now if you're a Jew, which one would you pick? Why? It's going to take you four more days. Because that's how much you hated these people. So you'd take four extra days just because you don't even want to go through door number one. So the Samaritans not to be outdone, anybody who picked door number two and came the straight shot, they harassed them and were even known to murder Jews that were coming along the shorter route. And so for Jesus to go this way is unusual. Now for Jesus to go this way and He's expecting some hospitality is extremely unusual. But what is Jesus doing? He's extending even to His enemies the hand of friendship. Why? Because what was Jesus' purpose? 
Love, He came to seek and to save. Luke 19.10, what did I say? Is the key verse of Luke. 19.10, you ought to know it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to destroy people's lives. He came to save them. And so He's extending this hand of friendship to them. The Gospel was for what? One person? It was just for the Jews? It was for everybody. No exceptions. And so here He is headed towards Jerusalem. And let's look at what happens. Look at verse 52. He sent messengers ahead of Him. Now we're not sure who that is. It could have been the disciples. may even have been the twelve. We don't know. But He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. I mean, think about it. A group of this size, probably 12 to 15 more people, would strain a small village and Jesus wanted to be sure they had accommodations, food and rest. It'd be like if I said, hey, after uh, uh, church today, we're all going over to Marty's house and he's going to feed us and, and shack us up for a day or two. Marty's like, hold on, I don't even have that much food for everybody and I don't have enough room. Do you understand? He wanted to be sure there was enough room, there was enough food for all of them. And so he sends this group ahead to make accommodations and look at how it's met. Verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So why did they not receive him? Turn to John 4. Did they not receive him because they were rejecting him as Messiah? No. John 4 makes that clear. So let's look at John 4. Surely you know this story, the woman at the well. We'll read a couple of verses about it and see why they were rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 3 and 4 first. He left Judea and departed again for Samaria and he had to pass through Samaria. Some of yours probably said he must need to pass through Samaria. It was divine appointment for him to go to Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman at a well that needed eternal life. A woman that everybody else had rode off. The man, you're right, you ain't got a husband because the man you're with ain't even your husband. You got five others. Jesus isn't worried about that. You don't clean your life up and then come to Christ. You come to Christ and He he cleans you up. Any of you ever caught a fish and expected it to be clean when you caught it? You catch it and then you clean it up. The church does the exact opposite. They expect to catch clean fish. And so then, look here at verse 28 to 30. The woman, after her interaction with Jesus, left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Believed in him as what? Messiah. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So why did they reject him? They rejected him just because he was a Jew. And so because his face is set towards Jerusalem, he's going towards Jerusalem, that implies that what? He's rejecting their side of worship. And they said, okay, we'll see your content and we'll up the ante. I mean, it's just hate bomb for hate bomb. They're in this vicious cycle of retaliation. And so that's not how Jesus 
Acts. But look at his disciples. Turn back to Luke. So when they see this, look at verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So when they see it, Katie barred the door, fire, power. What does Jesus do? He turns and He rebukes them. And so I want to ask you, are we just as worthy of Jesus' rebuke as the disciples today? Before you shake your head, consider. I'm going to give you several different ways that all end in AL. Racial. There is no hotter issue in America than black versus white. Our country is teeming with racial divide and hate. If you don't believe me, turn on the nightly news, get on Facebook, get on social media. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it is both sides of the aisle. I had a patient a couple weeks ago told me that she has a white daughter that is uh, married to a black man and said his parents make her life you know what. And even amongst Christians. I had a gentleman tell me in the office when we were talking about going to Africa, he said to me, this man is a Christian, he said, well, it's too dark for me, if you know what I mean. And I really honestly wanted to say, because I had a student with me in the room that was not black, thankfully, but I honestly wanted to say, no, I really don't know what you mean. Why don't you explain that to me? And why don't you crack out your Bible while you're doing it? Because I'd like chapter and verse, please. <coughs> and so, think about racial. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in whose image? His. I don't care what color your skin is, you're still made in the image of God. Acts 17.26 says that He created all nations to be descended through what? One man. Why does 23andMe work so you can figure out your genetic component and all that? Because all of humanity goes back to one common ancestor, Adam. And what did uh, the Lord say in 1 Samuel 16.7? You look on the outside, but the Lord looks on the heart. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, I know some white Christians that I wouldn't go to bat for, but I'm going to tell you one black Christian in Uganda that I would die for, and that is Dr. Sam. Because it doesn't matter to me the color of your skin. It matters to me here how much you love God and how much you love people. And like I said, it's on both sides of the aisle. And let me tell you, some of these people that are Christians and say stuff like that, Africa's too dark for me. I wanted to say, well, brother, heaven's going to be too dark for you too. Because Revelation 7 says that there's going to be people of all colors, all tribes, and all nations. And if you don't like people that don't look like you, don't go to heaven because you're really going to be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Alright, so that's racial. How about geographical? North versus south. The North thinks that us Southerners are nothing but gun-toting, backwood, ignorant rednecks. And we think they're anti-gun, rude, arrogant jerks. 
It's even state versus state. If you don't believe me, if this were instead of April, October, and we had SEC football going on, you know that it is state versus state. Sometimes it's even within the same state against the same state. Take Auburn and Alabama. They're not going to sit side by side in a pew together. Even city versus city. I mean, a token Munford. I mean, they literally split Highway 51 down the middle, and this is a Toka, and this is Munford. <laughs> and none of us want to go to Memphis, right? So, what does the Lord say about that? In Jeremiah 29 7, it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have put you. We ought to seek the welfare of Atoka, even if we're from Covington. And we ought to seek the welfare of Memphis and not want fire to rain down on them no matter where we're from. Alright, national. It's America versus everybody. We are so proud of being Americans, aren't we? And I'm a proud American. Very much so. I had a father that was in the military that fought for my right to be up here and to be free. Went and risked his life before I was born in Vietnam. I am a proud American. But brothers and sisters, sometimes I wonder when we carry on about how great we are, I wonder what God really thinks compared to other countries. And I've told you before, what does Philippians 3.20 say? If it comes down to it where I have to renounce Jesus Christ or I have to renounce my American citizenship, you know which one's going? The American citizenship because I ain't a citizen of this place no way. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. How about social? Rich versus poor. Well, then you got college versus working class. Well, working class people are stupid. Well, let me tell you, if working class people are stupid, let's not let anybody take the garbage for about two weeks and we'll see how smart you think they are. Amen? Amen. Or go to a high school graduation and people go, oh yeah, he's so dumb, you know, that's why he's got to go into the military. Praise God there's still young men and women that will go and potentially fight so that you and I have the right to come in here this morning and open this Word without anybody with a gun saying you can't do it. What does the Bible say about social? James says if you have two people come into church and the rich man comes in, you go, oh, come on up here and have a seat in the front. And the poor man, you say, now you just need to go on back there to the back. You smell. We don't want anybody to see you. What does he say? You've become God and you've made distinctions that God doesn't make. Not to mention God has given the poor to inherit the kingdom. What about political? You see, I left that one on down here. Liberal versus conservative. Democrat versus Republican. I mean, you want to start a fight, start talking about DACA. Talk about the Second Amendment. Talk about abortion. Talk about taxes or welfare. I tell you, I have almost gotten off of Facebook over this political mess. You know what Jesus would do or say? In John 13, He said, By this the world will know that you are My disciples. How? If you love one another. As Christian Democrats and Christian Republicans, we tear each other apart like birds of prey. We need to knock that mess off. Trump ain't my president. Neither is Obama. My president is Jesus Christ. I told a man that the other day in office. Or I told a woman, 
That, I think I shared that with it. She was a new patient. She was carrying on about how anxious she was, and she watches the news all the time and politics and all this, and I had a student in there with me, and I said, well, you know, I said, I don't really watch all that stuff because nothing I can do about it. I said, not to mention that my president is uh, King of Kings. You might know him. His name is Jesus Christ. And afterwards, the student said, she was like, I said, do you like that little uh, interaction? She's like, yeah. She's like, hello, new lady. Do you know Jesus? <laughs> but we need to knock some of this political garbage off, don't we? Yeah. How about spiritual? Oh, you know what them Church of Christ believe. You've got to be baptized to be saved. Oh, you know about them Presbyterians. They believe in predestination. Oh, you know them crazy Baptists. They believe once saved, always saved. Well, you know, the Methodists, they didn't just do anything. Cuss, drink, they sprinkle kids, they baptize babies, you know, whatever. We even get Southern Baptists against Southern Baptists, don't we? Oh, you ever, oh, he's a Calvinist. Oh, he's a free will Baptist. I am so sick of all this nonsense garbage. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus Christ is Lord, and every person on the planet needs him. Just go tell your neighbor that he loves you and you need him. Amen. Amen. Not to mention, Galatians 3.28 says we're all one in Christ. There's no Greek. There's no Jew. Well, what about those that hate us? Lincoln was criticized for being too courteous to his enemies and reminded his, of his duty to destroy them. And this is what he said. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? One pastor said this, he said, even if someone is utterly mistaken, that person must never be regarded as an enemy to be destroyed, but as a stray friend to be recovered by love. Man, if we acted like that, our world would be a whole lot better place, wouldn't it? So in short, prejudice is unbiblical and unchristian. Amen? Alright, next. They exhibited prejudice, and then they walked in the flesh. So first bad attitude was they exhibited prejudice. The second was they walked in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Now from their viewpoint, their attitude and request for action here to call down fire from heaven was probably praiseworthy. Amen? I mean, you've got to give them an A-plus for faith, an A-plus for devotion to Jesus and zeal for His honor, and Old Testament memorization as we're going to look at. But from God's standpoint, they got an F on attitude and spirit. So look at faith, devotion, zeal, and Old Testament recall. I mean, look at what they said. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Mine doesn't have it, but some may have it. Mine has a footnote that says some manuscripts add, as Elijah did. But this question is deep in faith. I mean, they said, hey, let's call in an airstrike, and boom, God's going to lower the hammer. Second, Jesus had already told them back in chapter 9 that if you go into a village and they don't receive you, just shake off the dust from your feet is a testimony against them. They said, well, we're just going to up the ante because ain't nobody going to mess with our Jesus. Wasn't that how Peter acted? When the Lord says that I must go and I must suffer many things and I must die and then be raised again, he pulls Jesus to the side and he says, now Jesus, this ain't never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. You don't even know what you're talking about. What's going on in the garden? He gets arrested. What's old Peter do? Pulls out a sword. Tries to hack off somebody's head. Luckily misses. Gets his ear whacked off. Jesus puts it back on. He says, put that away. 
And they see strong similarities between Jesus and Elijah. If you know the story in 2 Kings 1, Ahaziah was the king then, and he was an evil king, and he sends messengers, he's uh, on his deathbed, and he basically goes to send some messengers out to try and uh, be involved in demonic uh, influence and see if uh, he's going to live. And they, uh, Elijah sends a message to them. And then these guys come up to Elijah and he says, Lord, rain down fire twice and 50, two times 50 people die. And so the problem is, Mufold, they wanted to play the part of Elijah and not leave that up to Jesus. Amen? Don't we sometimes want to do that, play God's part? Often? The second they failed to see the situations weren't the same. Ahaza was rejecting God. The Samaritans weren't rejecting God. They were just throwing hate back for hate. And so Jesus said, this isn't how His disciples are to behave. Flip over to Luke 6. I mean, they knew better. What did Jesus taught them? Now I'm going to read this to you in a little different so you can get the point of it. Luke 6, 27 to 38. Listen to how I read it. Because this is basically what Jesus was saying to them. But I say to you who hear, love the Samaritans. Do good even if they hate you. Bless them even if they curse you. Pray for them even if they abuse you. If one of the Samaritans were to slap you on the cheek, offer the other also, and if he were to take your cloak, go ahead and give him your tunic. Give to every Samaritan that begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others will do to you, do so to the Samaritans. Do you get the emphasis of that? That's basically what Jesus was saying. Because what did I substitute? Enemy for Samaritan. Not to mention they had seen this fleshed out in Jesus' life a thousand different ways. Think about in Nazareth. He gives His first sermon in His hometown. And they get so irate, they, really want to, they literally want to kill Him. And they go to drive Him and throw Him off of a cliff. And does Jesus zap them, call down fire from heaven? What does He do? It says He just passed in the midst and went on. Think about here. Does Jesus say, well now, you know, you Samaritans are wrong because that's actually what He told the Samaritan woman, if you'll remember in John 4.20. Y'all don't even know God because you don't have all the Scriptures. You're worshiping in the wrong place. But does He here say, who's right and who's wrong? No, He doesn't do any of that. Does He try to retaliate? No, He doesn't do any of that. And think about the cross. When He's hanging on the cross, dying for Buffy Cook, and they're coming by and they're mocking him. And oh yeah, he said he's going to get off of there. Get off of there. Come down from there. You want to save your, you saved others. Save yourself. Praise God he did not come down off that cross. He said, I could call down a legion of angels. Do you know who I am? I am God, the Lord of hosts. I have command of the whole army of angels. He didn't do any of that. What did He do? He said, Brother, forgive them. Because they don't even know what they're doing. Talk about amazing grace. Mm -hmm. What an attitude. 
No wonder some manuscripts say you don't know what manner of spirit you are for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives but to save them. And so let me ask you, are we just as worthy of Jesus' rebuke as the disciples? Let me ask you, how's your faith? I had a lady that came to me for clearance for surgery. We spent about five minutes getting her cleared for surgery and I spent about ten minutes talking to her about spiritual stuff. In which I said, Lady, I know you're a Christian. I said, Miss B, I said, has the Lord not been good to you for 40-something years? Do you believe that God holds in orbit stars that make our sun look like a speck of dust? Yes, I believe that. Then why can you not trust Him for this simple little surgery in your life? Because we don't believe. Many times we need to pray like that man said, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's been the case in my life. Maybe you're better than me, but you didn't ask my wife. When it comes to the faith department, your pastor ain't got it all together a lot of times. And I cry out, Father, I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. So do we believe in the power of God? How's your devotion to Christ? What if He told you tomorrow to move and go to Ecuador? What if He told you to move and go to Africa? What if He told you to quit your job because I want you to become a missionary? How's your devotion? How's your zeal for Jesus' honor? When other people blaspheme His name, does it get on your skin? Irritate you? How good are you at recollecting the Scriptures like they did? I told a guy this week, I said, you know, if we had a literacy rate in the high schools, Amy, if the literacy rate at Brighton Middle School was that that was 25% of people were literate, we would have a national crisis tomorrow that only 25% of kids in middle school can actually read. But brothers and sisters, we have that same problem in our churches. People are biblically illiterate. 25% of people actually read this thing. And you know what the church does? There's no national crisis. We just keep marching right on. And we wonder why our lives are in a hot mess. We wonder why our churches are in a hot mess. It's because we have forsaken our first love and we don't even know the Scriptures. How many times did Jesus say that? You don't even know the Scriptures. He'd say the same thing to us today. Praise God, these disciples may not have had it all together, but they knew some Bible. And how's your attitude? You ever heard it said the best vitamin for a Christian is B1? Get that? Not B6 or B12, B1. God's still calling us to that today. Mark in your Bible, we won't read it for time's sake, but Mark Romans 12, 9-21. That's marks of a genuine Christian. As I was reflecting on this, David, you know how I am. I got, you know, y'all know, y'all can tell if y'all are visitors, you will obviously see that this pastor has some bad Pentecostal in him. So whenever I think of sermons, songs come to mind. And I thought of the song with this, Do they see Jesus in me? Do they recognize your face? Do I communicate your love and grace? Do I reflect who you are in the way I choose to be? Do they see Jesus in Buffy Cook? 
Next and final is they lost sight of the mission. I think I've shared it with you before. Alistair Begg once said, The color of my pastor's eyes and truth I cannot well define. For when he prays, he closes his, and when he preaches, I close mine. <laughs> Maybe that explains why the disciples lost sight of the mission. If you remember back when we preached through Luke 4, and Jesus picked the, the uh, scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is my mission. You know what he did? He said, Stop right in the middle of verse 2. Why did he do that? Because the rest of verse 2 was about judgment. He didn't come to judge the world the first time. He came to save the world. He came the first time as the lamb. He's coming the second time as the lion. So they lost sight of this. And they were going to learn this in a very powerful way in Acts 8. Just probably months, years later, this same village that they wanted to destroy, they went back and preached the gospel to and people got saved. I can imagine, I wrote my notes, I can imagine the conversation between Peter and John on the way home. Old Peter saying, yeah, I denied Jesus and I almost drowned out there on that water, but hey buddy, you got some crow in your teeth. You want to call down fire on these people and now God's using you to save. You know, the same is true. God sometimes will do the same from our very own witness. Tell me God ain't got a sense of humor. And so let me ask you, are we just as worthy of Jesus' rebuke as the disciples? Yes, because brothers and sisters, American Christians have lost sight of the mission. How many soul winners do we have in our churches? How many disciple makers do we have in our homes? We got children in here. We say a mama's worth is that she goes out and she makes a buck to add to the family. The best worth that a mama has and the best worth that a daddy has is to raise up disciples for Christ inside that home. And if you don't believe how important that is, talk to Patty and Corky Yates after the service and they will tell you how important it is and how big the influence of a mom and a daddy at home is. Amen. We got a country that just wants to take men and wipe them out of the equation. We need men in our homes. We need young men. Are we sharing the gospel? Are we winning the world? How many young people are being talked out of being a pastor? How many are being talked out of being a full-time missionary? I mean, are we doing these things as a church? Brothers and sisters, we've lost sight of the mission, and then we wonder why pastors are depressed and quitting. We wonder why our churches are shutting their doors. I'll tell you why, because to some degree, our biggest idol, you know what it is? Safety. We leave just a short period of time for Africa. And the thing I get asked repeatedly is, is it safe? Right now, evidently it isn't because literally Kenya is busting in half. And we'll probably have to take a detour around the big hole in the earth. And they'll tell us it'll be 30 more minutes and three days later we'll be there. <laughs> is it safe? I don't know, won't you go ask Hannah Williams? When she got sick, we had to take her to the hospital in Ecuador. Ask her if it's safe. I don't know, ask Vicki Cook. When the only medicine she's got, some man praying over her stomach, holding her stomach, and then squirting holy water in her mouth. Ask her if she thinks it's safe. Ask me, after the last time I was the sickest I've ever been, lost nearly 10 pounds. Ask Marty Bowers that risks his life to go. Ask Cassie Yates. You get your head knocked out, and then the doctor's giving you medicine, you don't even know where you're at. 
And that's the American doctor giving you the medicine. <laughs> Ask Corky Yates. Ask Noah Bowers. Brother just had surgery and he says, I'm going to Africa months later. Ask Evan. Ask Nathan for sacrily. That boy was sick. Ask Missy Smith. On and on. I didn't want to leave people out. But the point is, brothers and sisters, our biggest stumbling block, you know what it is? Ourselves. Is Romans 1.16 really true of Buffy Cook? That I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Can you honestly sing, I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme in glory. Let me ask you, if you love to tell the story, when's the last time you told it? How's your fruit basket? Jesus in John 15, 8 said, By this I will be glorified, my Father will be glorified if you bear fruit. John challenges us in 1 John 2, 28, when Jesus comes back, that some folks are going to shrink in shame at His coming. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, right now, honest before the Lord, not to me, but to the Lord. If Jesus were to bust the sky wide open in the next 60 seconds, would you be like, Glory, hallelujah, Jesus, I am so happy to see you. I have nothing to be ashamed of. Or would you be like, I should have done so much more. I should have told that person about Jesus. I should have done that ministry that He's been calling me to and I've just been tone deaf. You see what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? That is the last thing that I want to be true when Jesus Christ busts this sky for Buffy Cook to shrink in shame at His coming. I want to be like Oswald Sanders. Before 50, he had arthritis so bad he couldn't even hardly get out of bed. He could have just taken a nice retirement. Instead, you know what he did? He entered the most productive years of his life. At 50, he left a prosperous career as an attorney in New Zealand to lead the China Inland Mission. After several years of doing that, he retired to then lead a Christian college. He then retired again. Rather than taking it easy, he stepped on the gas. The last 20 years, he spoke around the world more than 300 times a year. At 90, he was working on a book when he died. A lot of Christians are going to be like the team in the fourth quarter that are 35 points down and they're trying to come back and secure victory in the last two minutes. It's going to be too little too late. Do you know the Scripture? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that when this offering plate comes around, here in a little bit, it is not so much that you, that I, as the pastor of this church, give a hill of beans how much money you put in that church or in this plate. You know what I would love to see the most? You actually step off in it and say, here I am, God. You do with me whatever you want to do with me. Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Brothers and sisters, I don't want a church that's got a certain budget and we got a certain amount. Oh, I'm not going to leave out of here today and I'm not going to tell people we had a great service because we had so much offering. I had a pastor tell me that the other day. You'd be shocked if I told you who it was too. Tell me, isn't that really all we really care about is the offering at the end of the day? I want to slap it. 
I tell you what I'm worried about. I'm worried about how many of the people that are under shepherd, I'm the under shepherd to get in that offering plate and give their whole life to Christ. That's what matters to me. Let me give you a challenge real quickly how you can incorporate all three of these. You ready? Brother Bester. Any of you know Brother Thomas Bester? I love that man to death. He said one time at church camp, and I'll never forget it, he said one time, 99.7% won't do. On the day of judgment, Buffy Cook to stand before Jesus and say, I did 99.7%. That ain't going to do. I want it to be 110%. Amen? But he said, we have coming up the day before our annual meeting at FBC Ripley on October 22nd, 7 p.m., they're having an evangelism rally. And so he said, share the gospel with, here's this, two who don't look like you and bring them to that rally. Alright, in closing. You ever seen a painting or sculpture? Probably a painting and thought, what in the world is that? If you're a parent, you have. Kid brought you something and you thought, what in the world is this? But you're like, honey, it's so beautiful. And you thought, well, just wait till I get finished with it, then you'll see how beautiful it is, right? Are you unfinished? The disciples were. Prejudice, walking in the flesh, lost sight of the mission. In the time of their martyrdom, no prejudice, they're walking in their spirit, and their eyes are fully on the mission. Paul, after he had been a Christian for 25 years, if anybody could have let off of the gas and said, I got it all going on, it could have been him. And what did he say in Philippians 3? He's still striving. He's still striving. Because he didn't have it all together. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know the song we just sang? David, ain't it amazing how God works? We sang Amazing Grace, and I got here at the end, John Newton, who was the author of uh, Amazing Grace. Listen to this quote that he said. I'm not what I ought to be, all how imperfect and deficient. I'm not what I wish to be, I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be, soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I'm not what I once was. I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So are you unfinished? Are you what you ought to be? What you wish to be, hope to be? Are you what you used to be? This is most important. Are you able to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am? Actually, there's a song by Mandisa. Many of you may have heard it. It's entitled, this very thing that I've used as the sermon today, the title, Unfinished. She says, No, my God's not done, making me a masterpiece. He's still working on me. He started something good, and I'm going to believe it. He started something good, and He's going to complete it. So I'll celebrate the truth. His work in me ain't through. I'm just unfinished. Praise God that we're not what we used to be. By the grace of God, we are what we are, and that He's still working in our lives today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for this time. Just thank You so much that we have been able to come and to worship You, Father, in uh, spirit and in truth, and Father, through song and through Your Word, and here in just a moment, through the offering of our uh, tithes and offerings. And so, Father, we pray that You would bless everything that has been done today, that it will bring honor and glory to You. Father, I pray for this time of invitation that You will just stir hearts, 
to respond to the invitation. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to do this a little different on the invitation. In honor of the sons of thunder, their desire to rain down fire from heaven, I'm going to give you a fiery invitation. First, if you're saved, the only fire we ought to wish to fall on other people is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Amen? To save them. You ever told somebody, I'll be praying for you, and then you forgot? Who do you need to pray John 16:9 over? That the fire of the Holy Spirit would fall on them, convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to, if there's someone God puts on your heart and your mind, to come down to this altar and pray for them now because you walk out that door, you're going to forget. Come and pray that they would be saved. Second, if you're backslidden, the only way not to be miserable in this life is to be on fire for Christ. Amen? And there's a time you were more on fire for the Lord and now you may be backslidden. Can you honestly say with David, as he did in Psalm 69.9, that love for God and His house burns hot within you like fire? If not, come and pray God to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit and the joy of your salvation will be restored and you'll be on fire for Christ. If you're here today, you're lost, you don't know the Lord. The only hope you have to escape the lake of fire is to receive Christ today. There's only one sin that will commit anyone to that lake of fire, and it's the sin of unbelief. Jesus said, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that He might, through the world, might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, do that today. Receive Him as Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins and follow Him the rest of your life. As we stand and sing, listen to the Lord. It's page 307. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to Without, O oh Lamb 
Ah.